link, learn, and connect with some of the best, most articulate, and practical professionals in the field of speech-language pathology. Do you work with school-aged children? You're in the right place to gather new information and great ideas for you and your therapy kids. Getting a child to say a good er sound is one thing, but getting them to use it consistently is another. Now, you know the easy R program for getting the er, but what about generalization? Well, what about the new R speech practice audios? Kids love to practice them and you quickly access them via QR codes. Go to speechdynamics.com to take advantage of the 40% off sale price. Do it now. In the speech-language world, there are so many acronyms that can make your head spin. Well, there's a group of individuals trying to narrow down and use one overall term in the area of language. They recommend Developmental Language Disorder, DLD. Now, they didn't come by this recommendation lightly. It's researched and makes total sense. (laughs) Grab your note-taking device. Here we go. Okay, before we do start officially, I'd like to do the disclosures. So Dr. Storkel has no financial disclosures. I, however, do receive an honorarium for the speech link, and I'm a presenter for speechtherapypd.com, and I do receive royalty payments, and I own Speech Dynamics, my company. As far as uh, non-financial disclosures, Dr. Storkel is a member of the USA Committee on raising awareness of developmental language disorder, which helped actually to develop the content for this course. Very impressive. And I have no financial disclosures to report. So there we go. So once again, I'd like to welcome everybody to our live SpeechLink podcast, sponsored, of course, by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am Char Beauchart, your speech language pathologist host, and I'm so glad that you're here uh, for our very practical topic, how and why to use the term DLD to raise awareness and generate connections. And before we begin, I would like to remind you that you, all of you, are more than welcome to participate during the podcast. Just type in your question or comment into the chat, and when appropriate, we'll read it, and Dr. Storkel will respond. All right, Holly, let's let's jump in. Let me just share with you about this wonderful, very knowledgeable person. Dr. Holly Storkel received her BA in Speech and Hearing Sciences from Indiana University and her MS in Speech Language Pathology and PhD in Speech and Hearing Sciences from the University of Washington in Seattle. And she recently completed an online certificate in Implementation Science at the University of California, San Francisco. And Dr. Storkel began her career at the University of Kansas in 2001 as an assistant professor, then an associate professor, then a full professor. And while on the faculty, her research focused on helping children learn words and sounds so they could succeed in school and life. That's that's a good thing to do. And she conducted theoretical research to understand the nature of sound and word learning difficulties in preschool and early language, early school age children, as well as clinical research to develop and implement effective treatments for sound and word learning difficulties. She also held various administrative positions while at the University of Kansas, including department chair, associate dean, and vice provost. Whoa. 
So Dr. Storkel just recently, as in August 2022, joined the National Institute on, on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders as the Program Officer for Language. As a program officer, she administers grant funding programs, sets priorities for funding, and is an advocate for research on language and language disorders across the lifespan. Oh, Dr. Storkel is also a member of the USA Committee on Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder, RADLD, is an international group advocating for greater public awareness of DLD. And the content of this course was developed in conjunction with USA RA. <laughs> so you can say rattled. R-A-D-L-D. We actually L-D. pronounce it rattled. <laughs> you do rattle? <laughs> yeah. Oh, a sandwich. <laughs> okay. All right. In conjunction with USA rattle. I love it. And this is her second appearance here on the speech link. And she does prefer to be called Holly. So welcome back to the speech link, Holly. Thanks, Char. I'm glad we managed to make it happen tonight. It was a little little touch and go there. But. A little touch and go. <laughs> yes, it was. And thanks for hanging in there. No problem. My yeah, pleasure. Yeah, you never know. Looking never forward know. to talking to y'all. So happy to, yes. happy to wait just a little bit. Well, you're worth waiting for. <laughs> I mean, and, and truly you are. I mean, I probably wouldn't say that if we didn't have our first podcast, which was really interesting. Uh, But you are, you're an amazingly knowledgeable person. So I am very excited about this topic for a number of reasons. I was, you know, formerly an SLP in the schools, and I'm very supportive and very grateful for this topic. You are talking with us about the term developmental language disorder, DLD, as being the designated term or the best term or the single term to describe students with language disorders, which encompass a whole variety of populations, as well as, I'm going to say, professionals who work with those populations. So this is actually huge. This is We're not just talking about language therapy as SLPs know it. This goes beyond. So get us started. Tell us about it. Sure. So first, what what I mean by developmental language disorder, who who are we talking about? So we're talking about people who um, exhibit their language difficulties um, in childhood, um, although they might still persist into adulthood. So we might find adults who have this diagnosis as well. And those language difficulties are characterized by significant difficulty learning, understanding, and or using spoken language. And these difficulties are not explained by other conditions or extended circumstances. Um, So we're not talking about, for example, children with autism who also have language difficulties as part of that that condition, Um, or uh, children with developmental delays who also might have language difficulties as part of that broader condition. Um, We're talking about children who have primary language difficulties that aren't associated or don't don't have a diagnosis uh, of a condition that we normally associate with language difficulty. So so really, this is their primary diagnosis, their primary issue, um, although they might have other um, kind of comorbid difficulties. Um, so they might also have things like ADHD that have some relationship with language, but there's not maybe a clear profile of language difficulties that are common across everyone with that diagnosis. So Probably people are saying, I know that, but that's not what I call it. <laughs> and that's the <laughs> issue that really came up that we've we've known about this group of children for 
for a very long time, decades. But we've called it all sorts of different things. Um, we've called it specific language impairment. We've called it suspected language impairment or suspected language delay or receptive or expressive language impairment or um, developmental dysphagia. I mean, we have all these different terms. And so kind of how this came about of, of a concern about all the terminology, um, I mean, I think many people have complained about that. So, you know, as an SLP, if you're wanting to find out, um, you know, how best practice uh, for assessment or treatment of this group, and you're trying to search the literature, well, there's a million different terms. So you have to kind of search for all those different terms to try to make sure that you've, you know, found whatever's out there. Um, same kind of thing for researchers as well. So we've kind of known about this problem, um, but Dorothy Bishop, who's a researcher in the UK, is someone who really started to bang the drum about this. Um, she did what she called the, the taxi driver test. And so as she was traveling around for her work and everything, she'd take cabs all over the place and she'd ask people um, for her preferred term at the time, which was specific language impairment. So she'd ask them, have you heard about this? And I don't think she ever managed to find a single taxi driver who had heard about <laughs> no. specific language impairment, but they did know dyslexia. They did know autism. They did know ADHD. And she started wondering, like, why is it that they know all of these other conditions, um, many of which are as common as DLD? So, for example, dyslexia is as common as DLD. And the impact is, is similar as well. Um, folks with dyslexia have um, significant challenges as do children with DLD. And so she started wondering like, why, why do people not know about this? And she had a variety of ideas, but one of the things she wondered is, is it because we use so many different terms? Even amongst ourselves, we can't really agree on what this is. Um, and so then we're also not providing information in um, an easy to find type of way. So she started to think that, you know, maybe we really needed to come to some consensus about what we're going to, to call this. And so what she did was she gathered a very broad uh, group of folks. So it was an international panel. It included researchers. It included clinicians. It included um, parents or individuals who have DLD. And they went through um, kind of a rigorous process of deciding on what the term should be. So there was some discussion of like, well, what are the key features? What do we need to highlight in the term? What are the best words to, to say that? How do we communicate that? And so they came up with uh, developmental language disorder, DLD. And the reasoning behind it was that the developmental was important because it, it conveyed that it was something that we will um, typically observe in childhood. It's something that is early. It's not something that you get from a brain injury later in life or some sort of neural disease. So they, they thought that was really foundational to understanding what this is. Um, language, for the obvious reason, that it's difficulties with expressive and or receptive language. And then disorder to indicate that it was really a lifelong condition. This is not something children grow out of, um, although their strengths and weaknesses may change over time, and we certainly can uh, help them through our intervention efforts. Um, but it's, it's not going to go away, and they're not suddenly going to be facile with language and have no struggles around that. And so that was thought to be another important component that folks needed to recognize that 
um, this would be lifelong, that we would see um, adults who would still be having some of the effects or maybe some challenges from their language difficulties. So this was the term uh, that she really suggested or that the community agreed on through this consensus process that we should use this term, use it consistently, and start building this public awareness of what this condition is so that that would hopefully, you know, start to open doors for funding. Uh, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> funding and more speech language pathologists in schools and, you know, greater access to services for uh, individuals who have this condition. Well, you're on the cutting edge there, girl, aren't you, <laughs> in your new position? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're you're kind of in charge of funding and what gets funded and research and, and topics and so on. I mean, you know, you're perfect for that position, I would think. So, yeah, and I, and I imagine you're going to really enjoy doing that, too. And, and as I mentioned, uh, NIDCD, the National Institute of Deafness and Communication Disorders, that's the, the group that I'm working for now. Um, mm -hmm. They do have a long history of funding research in this area, and it, you know, regardless of what we choose to call it. But again, they were aware for decades that this group of individuals was out there, and that is part of their, their mission area to help us understand the types of challenges that these children face um, and to learn different ways where we can better identify these children or earlier, as soon as possible, and in different sorts of contexts. So bilingual children, children who speak multiple dialects, where sometimes those assessment issues start getting, you know, really complex and convoluted, um, in addition to um, the treatment research. NIDCD also has kind of a public awareness role as well, because we have a website and uh, there are some fact sheets and things that are aimed at the public. So we're also revising what happens had been our specific language impairment fact sheet to now use this term, developmental language disorder, and to update it with some of the, the information that's coming out about what parents and the public need to know about this. So uh, that's another, another thing that we're taking on at NIDCD to help build awareness um, and contribute to this advocacy campaign. Great, great. Well, you're talking about parents, that's wonderful, and the public as a whole. What about teachers and school psychologists and resource specialists and and other personnel that work in the school. I mean that because you know we sort of get pigeonholed. Oh, oh, he's a language kid. And I remember a school psychologist saying, "Well, you did all the language testing. Let's hear from you." <laughs> you know, and, and pointing to me, like they weren't in. You know, they were not doing a language assessment of sorts themselves. So there is kind of that separation that SLPs sort of own that at this point, but not really. I mean, language is the method of instruction. Yes. Yes. Um, and that is definitely another important group of, um, and I would say even in medical settings as well, other folks there that might be definitely. involved in care of a, of a child. And so mm -hmm. really, you know, we, we don't want to kind of put that SLP in a silo with these kids. We really need the whole team to understand who these kids are and what their challenges are. And so I think probably our SLPs also are very familiar with, you know, teachers who don't really understand kids who have developmental language disorders. Um, I can remember when I was practicing, um, working with a high school student who uh, was very smart, very bright, also very socially outgoing, but whoa, had lots of really serious and significant language challenges. And, you know, the teachers were really kind of 
perplexed by him. I mean, their their explanation was that he was lazy and that he was goofing off with his friends. Uh, but the truth of yeah. the matter was he was really having a hard time keeping up with what was going on in class and yeah. understanding oh, what was happening that. and yeah. the amount of effort it took him to do his assignments and things like that, you know, were very draining. And, you know, it, the teachers just couldn't kind of reconcile that of like, he's so bright, he's so outgoing. And yet he doesn't do these things. Why doesn't he do these things? You know, so we have a hard time really thinking about what language is. If you're not an SLP who has gone through that master's program and that undergraduate education to understand speech and language and hearing and cognition and how all of these systems also interact, you know, language is really hidden. And so when kids are doing behaviors, we tend to kind of interpret the, the most kind of simplistic explanation for it. You know, they're misbehaving. Well, they're just bad. They're just ornery. Uh, when maybe they didn't understand the instruction, like that's not necessarily the first thing you go for. Or a kid who's hitting another kid because they can't do that verbal negotiation to get the thing that they want. And again, you just say, oh, they're they're just poor behaved and they don't have any patience and da, 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 da. And you're not thinking through to that language. So, you know, having this term and really sharing that broadly with team members, you know, gives us an opportunity to educate about what language is, what that looks like. I'm sure all the SLPs in the schools can also relate to being called the speech teacher. And we don't just do speech. So, you know, kind of highlighting that language piece in this, this name, I think is really helpful. And then being able to explain, you know, what do we mean by language? What, what kinds of challenges do children have when they have language difficulties? And we can start, you know, giving um, teachers and parents and other school psych principals, you know, whoever coaches, you know, because kids are out in the community too. We mm -hmm. can start giving them an understanding of some possible explanations. Like we don't know if a kid is shy or if they have a language difficulty, but we can start making some of those connections for people so that when they see some of these things, they're also thinking, well, it could be language. So, you know, maybe I need to refer or maybe we need to get the SLP in here, um, you know, to look at this or, um, you know, maybe maybe they don't need, you know, services from the SLP, but maybe there's some different things I can do in my classroom environment that would really support children who are struggling with language so that they can better succeed and that I, I won't just jump to this, oh, he's ornery or he's lazy, you know, like let's really think about this more, um, all of the different things that it could be. Yes, yes. I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, back in my school therapy days, I talking with the teachers was always a challenge, let's just say, about language, because they really had no clue what it was. And they thought of language as being grammar, you know, and so that they would teach English grammar. And I remember years ago, now I'm thinking that teachers are, are more advanced in, in thinking of vocabulary and, and if the child knows vocabulary and, you know, looking at the child's ability as they're going through a story, if they know the vocabulary, the meaning of those words or not, and can connect the meanings. So I think teachers are more focused on that. So, you know, there, there is hope. But you know, and that really is, and maybe that would be a really good place to start because I think teachers have become more focused on vocabulary. You know, they've got the grammar thing down, 
of sorts, at least the print language down for grammar piece. Not so sure about the oral piece. But, you know, maybe that would be a place to start because it's it really is a challenge to talk with teachers about it. And I have done, you know, just my little, you know, PowerPoints, you know, on staff development days with teachers and stuff, just my little thing that I came up with through the years. Um, and But then teachers tend to go back, just as we all do, and do the same thing that they have always done. You know what I'm saying? So this this change of, really, it's more of a change of paradigm that leads to many changes of mindsets is is huge. But I think it's something that we need to pursue. Because if we don't start, we'll never make it. And uh, but it is big. I do think probably uh, teachers have have come a long way, but I, I think mm-hmm. they probably have further to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I th- my impression is that what teachers tend to know maybe more about is reading, and so they know a little bit about how uh, verbal language might support reading. So you mentioned vocabulary. I think I think in some teacher training programs, they're you know making the explicit link between knowing vocabulary and how that helps with learning to read. Um, so I think we are getting some. Um, understanding of that. Um, But at the same time, like, you know, they're not trained in language the way that we're trained in language. So, you know, still the way they kind of think about it or what they might think of as red flags for language difficulties, you know, are probably different than what we would think of. That we probably have um, a a longer list of red flags, let's say, than what a teacher um, might have. And so I think you're right that we we really need to um, start building that collaboration with teachers and start building some of that that training into our collaborations. You know, um, I, I one of my last uh, projects with a doctoral student was um, looking a little bit at how SLPs get kids with DLD on their caseload. How do they find them? And so most SLPs use a teacher referral. And I think that can be a, a very good uh, source um, because, you know, teachers are with kids for a long period of time. They have lots of time to observe them more more so than yep. what an SLP is going to have in their assessment. So, and they're they're observing them in a um, an authentic environment. And of course, in the schools, part of qualifying a child for services is that their uh, disability is impacting their their um, their education. Um, so, you know, we kind of need that insight of. Is this really having an impact? At the same time, we know, and SLPs know too, because this came out in the data, you know, SLPs were worried about how accurate those referrals were from teachers. Um, And the research literature bears that out too, that um, teachers tend to under-refer. So back to that idea of we have a lot more red flags in our bag. (laughs) They only have a couple. And so it makes sense then that they wouldn't refer every kid that maybe we would want them to refer. And and that's okay. <laughs> you know, well, we couldn't handle it anyway. But you yeah, know. we couldn't handle it. But they need to know how to handle it themselves. And and I'm not certainly I'm not complaining about teachers. I I mean some of my best friends are teachers. You know, but but this is an issue. It absolutely is. And I and you know the whole piece, the literacy piece. I mean, you know, we we're sort of sliding in that direction too. But I mean, you know, you're thinking, you're talking about possibly curriculums, you know, education curriculums at the university level, or maybe encouraging uh, classroom teachers' education to include 
a language course in the speech language pathology department, those kinds of things. I mean, and wouldn't that be wonderful? You know, is there who who handles that? I mean, is that an ASHA thing? You know, could could ASHA do something along those lines, or where does that come from? I, I think ASHA could advocate in that direction. I, you know, I don't know <laughs> how much success you'd have. I mean, it's just like if someone came to us and said, "I think you need to add this into your curriculum." I I think we all feel like our master's curriculum is pretty packed. Well um, enough, and I yeah. would just guess that teacher training programs probably have that that same feel. So I, I do think it would be great to, you know, try to do more of that, try to, or maybe not add a class, but see if there's a way to integrate something into an existing okay. class. But I also think at the same, even if you do that part, I still think you're probably going to need to try to establish that collaboration. And that's really what we're talking about. I, I'm not trying to bag on yeah. teachers either. I think it's really yeah. about having that partnership of how do we work together to right. serve the children. And, yeah. you know, not everyone can have those pullout services. So you're absolutely right that it's not even just the identification part, but it's also that classroom support piece as well. And trying to, you know, give the teacher uh, that kind of support so that they can meet the child's needs well within the curriculum. So, you know, trying to maybe, you know, shift our thinking a little bit too, which ASHA is doing. I don't know if you've seen the, the ASHA campaign about practicing at the top of the license. It's around those kinds of issues of saying, you know, you don't need to have direct contact with every single child who has a disability, you know, <laughs> in your school. Thank goodness. There's times where you need to be more of a coach to the teacher or to someone else and kind of teach them to fish sort of thing. Teach them how to support these children for, for whomever that might be appropriate for. And then only really be pulling out the kids who, you know, need more than that. So really trying to think about how do we divide up our time? Time to be just really efficient in what we're doing and really try to establish those collaborations, try to push some of that a little bit off of our, of our direct caseload onto other personnel who can maybe, who can maybe do that. Now, that's a pretty idealized version. <laughs> There's lots of challenges to accomplishing that as well, but that, that would be another, another kind of direction to go or, or in addition to trying to get the teachers to be a little more ready for that partnership and, and coaching. Yeah, well, and, I, and I'm sitting here thinking, so what could we do? I mean, because the, the whole premise of this is just excellent. But, you know, getting to reality and day-to-day -day implementation of this is, is a challenge. And I'm sure that everybody that, that you know, was on that committee, <laughs> you know, part of that, that uh, group in, in UK that pulled it together, I'm sure that they are very aware of this. Um, I'm thinking maybe, uh, you know, if you're a speech-language pathologist in the schools, that maybe on a staff development day that, you know, either you partner with a classroom teacher that you know that is really oriented to language. And there's always at least one or two in the school, you know, unless you're new, you know, you, you kind of have to wait a year or two to sort of let that, let that teacher bubble to the surface, but maybe collaborate with that teacher or the school psychologist where you all team up and, and do a day long presentation. You know what I'm saying? And where you have situations where there's 
characteristics of kids and, and, you know, just, you know, cause you don't want to just identify any kids, but, but you could make up some examples of some of the components that are, that are, you know, language disordered kids and uh, talk about it and what could they do in the classroom? Maybe something like, I mean, that would take a lot, but I'm thinking it would be really worth it. You know, if the teachers would follow through, then. Yeah. And so uh, I'll shift this just a tiny bit. So um, this is one of the good things about, you know, trying to get this consistent terminology of developmental language disorder, because mm-hmm. it, it also opens up opportunities for people to find information on their own so that it's not only the SLP doing the work. Yes. Um, so, for yes. example, USA Rattled, which there's a comment in the chat. What is this? <laughs> so uh, Rattled stands for Raising Awareness of Developmental Language Disorder. And so that's an international group. And then there's different chapters. So there's now a U.S. chapter of Rattled, and they have a website. And one of the things that International Rattled does is does, um, uh, DLD Awareness Days. And we have one coming up in October 14th, I believe is the date. Um, But they also um, put together a lot of materials. Um, So for example, last year for uh, DLD Day, they had a bunch of materials aimed at teachers. Um, They had a bunch of stuff about, you know, what does it look like when you have a language disorder? So it kind of the things that I was just saying about, are they shy or is it DLD? That kind of information to help um, teachers know what the profile is. Um, They also had a number of little things about things you could do um, in the classroom as a teacher. So like slowing down your speaking, using visuals, um, repeating information, chunking information. So they had a lot of good tips that they pushed out through the internet, through Twitter. There's also a a really wonderful group here in the U.S., um, DLD and Me. That's a a website, dldandme.org. And they have all sorts of informational materials available. Um, And some of them are aimed, well, all of them really are aimed at the public, but they also have some that are aimed more at families and more at children who have DLD. Um, So by using this consistent term and then, you know, having these other groups come together around raising awareness, they're creating a lot of materials that then it doesn't fall just to the SLP to do this. Like, I agree with, like, sure, let's have a workshop, but you might be able to draw some of these materials and pull some of these resources and things. And uh, USA Rattled, I think, even did a little presentation that was aimed at uh, teachers about what DLD is, uh, pre-recorded and everything. So, you know, you could just play that, play that yeah. during the workshop. I was and then, thinking somebody needs to do that. Yeah. So that, that was kind <laughs> yeah. of part of your point of like, well, gosh, there's a lot that needs to be done. But by, you know, kind of coming together in this partnership, bringing clinicians and researchers together around what this, what this group is and what kind of the needs are, we can start building some of these common, common resources that then it's not on the individual SLP who doesn't have this built into their day at all to do these, these educational things to be able to pull some of those common resources and not have to make them themselves. I see there was another There's couple questions. There's a couple here on, on the question and answer. Do you see those? Mm-hmm. Developmental language disorder has not been covered by insurance. Expressive language or receptive language, et cetera, have been covered codes. This will be a huge hurdle to get services covered. Are you familiar with that medical? Yes. And then I see it. The next question is into IEPs. I don't know if it's exactly on the same topic of, of terminology, but I did want to talk about that. So yes, we, we have existing terminology in these systems. 
and you know, ICD-10 codes are like, they're not going to change that. <laughs> they're not going to change no. that for us. Those are in stone. Yeah, right. And they're not going <laughs> to yeah. change the IEP eligibility categories either. No, um, no they're but, not going to change those. But um, what, what we're recommending is that you use the term DLD in conjunction with those categories. And, and here's kind of why. First of all, where the heck did those categories come from? Was it because someone sat down and really thought, oh, these are like super helpful diagnostic categories, like these are, you know, really useful in clinical practice? I don't actually know, but I don't think so. <laughs> I think these were, you know, people came up with this because, you know, it was a, a convenient way to categorize stuff. And not that it has no merit, but just, you know, like we don't want to have a hundred codes. So if you look at the, the IEP eligibility categories, I think there's something like 13, right? They wanted a small number and they wanted it mainly for like um, central data reporting. You know, they wanted all the schools to have a way to report their data back to the government so that you could put it all together. And so we couldn't let schools just make up their own codes. We had to give them some number of codes. And again, we didn't want it to be like a million. <laughs> and I imagine probably same kind of thing for the ICD-10 because it's it's mainly for insurance purposes and so on. So again, you don't want like thousands of these things um, that then everyone has to agree on these really fine distinctions of, of what this is. But the problem with these codes is that they're way too general. So in the, the handout that was part of the resources for this talk, I, I show um, uh, just the one category, uh, the IEP category of speech or language impairment. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff <laughs> that falls under speech or language impairment. So the, the problem with that is then if you tell a parent, you know, your child has a speech or language impairment, now they go to Google something and all kinds of stuff comes up that really has nothing to do with what their child's difficulty actually is. Whereas if you tell them your child has developmental language disorder, they can now Google that and they'll find something like DLD and me or rattled and they'll have some, you know, really good information that's probably very on target and very similar to the kinds of difficulties that their child has. So it's very useful for them to, to have that ability to find more information. So what we're suggesting is that, for example, in the, in the school context, you might tell a parent your child's profile matches that of someone who has developmental language disorder, and then you would explain what that is. And that, you know, is impacting their, their academics. And here's kind of what we're seeing, what the issues are. Are. And so that then qualifies them for services in the school under the speech or language impairment category. So you're kind of being clear with them of this is your child's condition and then this is their eligibility category, which is you know how it works in the school. You have to have a disorder or a condition and then it has to impact your, your academics um, and then that's what gives you that eligibility. That also really helps you out in the case where someone isn't eligible for services because you're able to say your child does have this pattern that's consistent with developmental language disorder. So, you know, I appreciate the language difficulties that you're reporting to me. I, I see that too. And this is what that's called. You know, however, they're working really well in the classroom or their teacher is really supporting them well. And so their needs are being met and they're, they're succeeding in the academic environment. And so they're not going to be able to get services. They're not eligible because it's not having that academic impact. But now you've validated that initial complaint and said, yes, 
I see that too. And same thing could happen in a medical setting as well. Yes, I, I see your difficulty, but your insurance company is not going to pay for that or, or they are. Um, so it'd be the same kind of thing where you could tell a parent it's developmental language disorder. And then what you're coding is receptive expressive language impairment or whatever code is appropriate. Um, and in some contexts, maybe you don't even need to share that background coding. But um, the point in sharing that more specific diagnosis is that it gives them clearer information about what you're seeing as the weaknesses and, and the strengths. Hopefully you're reporting that as well. And that's helping the child or the child, the parent, in this case, the parent, better understand the child's strengths and weaknesses and, and have an explanation for uh, what they're observing. Okay. That, okay. All right. Okay. That, that makes, that makes sense. I'm just going to open this up and we don't have to spend much time on it. But assessments, from your point of view, you know, do we have adequate assessments for that coordinates with the DLD label? Do we have adequate assessments to separate the, well, your kid has DLD, but he's not, but he is succeeding in the classroom? Do you know what I'm saying? Are, are we refined enough? Do we need to focus on anything else? Oh, sure we do. <laughs> sure we do. You, you know are we I'm doing saying? a perfect job? Are you asking me, are we doing a it perfect is, job, Shar? <laughs> in assessments, no. Well, I'm not even looking for perfect. <laughs> I just know when I was in the schools, I was frustrated with the assessments. You know, I mean, it's not like I'm going to put one together that's any better, but I'm wondering, you know, could the, could the assessments, now that we're really narrowing things down here, is there some way that we could even maybe improve and coordinate? You know what I'm saying? I would say, you know, we do have decent assessments with, you know, good psychometric properties. Um, so we're not, you know, we're not completely flying blind, right? No. And there's no. uh, this consensus, uh, there's, there's some agreement on um, some of the criteria for developmental language disorder. So again, we're not flying completely blind there. You know, the educational impact piece, I think, has always been kind of a slippery slope and open to interpretation. Um, and a lot of that comes down to uh, clinician judgment, too. And, and so in some sense, I think that's probably okay, that it's probably hard to have like really hard and fast rules for certain things that um, we do need a little bit of subjectivity in our decision making. So that's, that's probably okay. Um, but I think there's definitely room for improvement. I'm thinking of this this dissertation project that I mentioned earlier um, uh, by Molly Sultani. Now that I've said it twice, I'll give her credit. <laughs> Molly Sultani, <laughs> uh, who is a PhD student at the University of Kansas, and she just finished this last summer. But as I had mentioned, she was looking at how do uh, school SLPs identify kids with DLD, um, and she did a survey, and then she also did some interviews. And so their interviews, I would say, were, were really revealing. Um, you know, one of the things they didn't like about standardized screeners is that and, and this, I think, applies to all standardized tests, is that when we do standardized tests, we're really narrowing what we're looking at in language, you know, because we're trying to isolate vocabulary or grammar or listening comprehension or something like this. So we, we make these kind of contrived tasks that aren't really what kids do. It's not, you know, true use of language or, you know, use of language to communicate. Um, and so they they didn't like that. And I think that's 
probably right to not like that in a way that if you're only using standardized measures, you're kind of missing what language is for, which is communication. So they they wanted some, you know, short tasks that would be more naturalistic um, that mm. could still be used to identify a language disorder. So, so they, you know, they really found that gap. And I think that's a really smart gap to highlight. Did There's they a real come need up with for that. one or two or three? Um, well, you know, Molly and I were spitballing and we were like, you know, narrative's kind of good, but, you know, the pro and this is where I was going, you know, we do have some naturalistic things like narrative and language sampling, conversation sampling, yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, is that analysis piece is so time consuming that it's, you know, it's great to have that real naturalistic sample, but then you have to kind of process it to make make sense of it. So yeah. I think trying well, to find, I, you know, some quicker I ways know. to do that, um, automatic yeah. ways to do that would be would be great. Well, and, and it's, you know, the thing is, we're really trying to diagnose something that is, oh, I don't even know how to explain it. It's just, it's kind of ethereal. And we end up on the tangible things like vocabulary and grammar and syntax and mean length of utterance, <laughs> you know, things that you can count and that you can measure and so on. But there's got to be some way to really, you know, look at the number of times that the child said, <laughs> like here I'm doing it, said, um, <laughs> you know, or, or um, came up with the wrong vocabulary word. Or, uh, you know, had an issue of trying to land what the child was trying to say. I, I called it the, you know, the child that was in the airport and he would talk and talk and talk, kind of like what I'm doing now. And he would have a hard time wrapping up what he was trying to say. Or he would go all around his intent and would never really focus on it and, and be able to, to specify what he's trying to say. I mean, those kinds of things, those are more abstract but it is language, and it is communication, and it is those things that can really impact the child's expression, I mean, hugely. But how do you, you know, how do you measure that? Yeah. How do you determine it? It really is difficult. It is. I mean, and that's where we, we have to start getting to some of those language sample analysis measures that are, I mean, you can do it, but you just need like all the time in the world. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's yeah. not that bad. But, um, you know, so working towards some more automatic types of um, coding or categorizing. And there are folks who are working on that type of thing. I don't, I don't know how Good. close we are, but, but I think, Good. I mean, my impression Good. is the way people do that now is that um, they're just getting that impressionistically. And so it would be nice to quantify it because obviously if you're, if you're maybe going to write a goal towards it, you want to be able to see the movement. So that's where having the greater precision would be really useful. But I think now what most SLPs are doing is that, you know, they might be having those conversations, taking those language samples, and they're just writing down those types of impressions just as you you know described um, and then they might you know jump in and you know, maybe if they want to count to ums they'll just do a real quick you know one minute portion of that sample or something and you know do some tallies or whatever um, so kind of a down and dirty way of doing it which isn't a bad thing um, but it you know would be great if we had things that were more automatic in that way that um, you didn't have to go through all of that effort and you could have that information kind of more at your fingertips um, and maybe even a, a greater variety of ways to quantify naturalistic language than, than what we have um, been doing. Um, so trying to expand some of those measures. Yeah. 
You know, I remember back when I was in school, I would send home a case history, you know, prior to the evaluation. I think it was, it was, was it the real R-E-E-L or something like that? I don't know. It's, you know, That's it's a ancient, something. I'm sure. I can't remember. Is yeah. that a test or is it a question? I don't know. I can't remember. Uh, was that a questionnaire or was it a test? I don't know. But I'd send home something. <laughs> and the parents, you know, would, you know, would, uh, I think it was more of a true, false, or, you know, maybe it was a one to five and they would grade it or something. I don't know. But it was more in the lines of the child's communication at home. And it didn't focus on grammar and syntax and and main length of utterance. It focused on the child's ability to communicate his or her thoughts. And, and, and the parents were actually pretty good at that. And, you know, I could even see maybe teachers doing that, and then maybe the parent, the teachers, and the therapist doing those kinds of things, and then just sort of getting together. And, and if we had something that was a little more objective, you know, just so that you get kind of a, a, a spectrum of observations and in different settings for the child. But at any rate, I'm off. No, but <laughs> I did want topic. to comment. I think, I think that is a good idea. And there are several, I can think of a couple other. There's the CCC, I forget what that stands for, something checklist, clinical competence, I don't know, something along yeah. those lines. I never know the, yeah. the, what the words are. <laughs> yeah. And there's some other things like that. There's also one for teachers. I, I, it's the troll, and I can't remember what that stands for. Teacher rating of language, maybe. Um, I think there are two, language and literacy. Um, So there are some of those measures out there. And I think those are really helpful. I think it is helpful to get that, you know, just that big picture, like as we were talking Mm -hmm. about, just with like the screening measures, we don't, there's, there's a role for being kind of reductionist and trying to kind of say, okay, vocabulary looks okay, grammar, maybe not so good, you know, kind of trying to pull out strengths and weaknesses. But ultimately, we do want to know what the whole package looks like as, as the SLPs were saying for a screener, like, I want to see this kid in context, I want to see if he can get an idea across, like, that's fundamentally what we're interested in. So getting those impressions from teachers, parents, and uh, for older kids, the kids themselves. um, I think that has a lot of value to say, you know, does this overall package, you know, look competent in their communication, especially since we know that, you know, kids with DLD or um, adults with DLD, um, they're judged for their communication abilities. So, you know, if you are someone who talks in a circle, you know, you're not going to get certain opportunities. People aren't going to, you know, invite you to be on a podcast, let's say, or, um, you know, they're going to choose someone that they think is more verbally gifted. And so that pulls away opportunities. It might pull away, you know, promotions and things, you know, um, that kind of bias um, comes into play in the way that we think communication relates to intelligence you know that's another kind of thing that people people might not think you're you know very sharp um, or, or very knowledgeable in whatever your your job or career is so um, you know that that holistic impression really does have a place in in what we're doing so that we can really think about you know pull back and take that big picture and say you know can this person get a point across do they do they sound like they know what they're talking about type of thing because that's what others are reacting to mhm 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 yeah a few presidents come to mind <laughs> there's been several actually. yeah really yeah really really oh my goodness sakes okay um so this dld can be very helpful and very supportive um, for everyone, for the child, 
I would think. I mean, what are the benefits for the child? I mean, we kind of talked about the parents, yeah. definitely, the teachers, but I'm sure that there's some benefits for the child. Yeah, uh, it's good for kids to to know this as well, because, you know, children children know if they're they're struggling. I mean, this is not a surprise, right? Children, mm -hmm. children who struggle with language start to understand what what that challenge is. And if we don't give them an explanation for what it is, they're just going to make it up themselves. Um, you know, I had a, a kid that I worked with who, I mean, he he called himself dumb. And he talked about going to his dummy classes, which was seeing me. <laughs> But he didn't really understand what was going on. That was his explanation. And, and that wasn't right. I mean, that's not what DLD is. He had many strengths and language was a weakness. But again, nobody talked to him about, well, what's language? You know, what does that even mean? So sharing that type of label uh, with the child starts helping them to understand their diagnosis as well, starting them, help them to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are. And it gives you a way to point out their strengths as well so that they don't just kind of take this, this overall feeling that, you know, they're just not good enough or something just very global in that way. Um, so it can really help them to to um, understand what those difficulties are. And it can also help look for information, just as it can for um, parents and teachers and so on. And it can also give them a way to explain their difficulties to others. So there's there's been a little bit of work on, you know, um, self-disclosure of what your difficulties are and what kind of an impact that might have on the listener. And, you know, that's that research is a little bit equivocal, but there are at least some, some studies that show some promise for that, that it, in essence, as we were just talking about, you know, if you're, if you're talking and someone doesn't know what's going on with you, they make their own assumptions. They, they think that you are not a good speaker or that you don't know what you're talking about and these other types of things, um, or maybe you're not trying or any of that. But if you disclose that you have this disability, it gives them an explanation for maybe what would be going on. And then they might view you with more empathy and more understanding and wouldn't, you know, kind of jump to some of those conclusions. Um, so there can be some benefits to self-disclosing to others, you know, I have this struggle, I need to do this type of thing. Um, so it also helps you then ask for accommodations as well, if that's if that's something you need to do. And of course, as kids, you know, we know as kids move into high school and they move into college, you know, we don't have many SLP services in high school. So, you know, a child who's able to kind of be their own advocate and do some of that negotiation with the teacher, you know, that's really empowering them to advocate for themselves and ask for accommodations. And then when they go to college, I tell you, we don't give them, <laughs> we don't give them much, quite frankly. Um, you know, they don't get services, obviously, but there are accommodations when you're in college, but it's more for, you know, testing and note taking and whatnot. And, you know, I think students potentially could do better if they were able to explain to their instructor, you know, I have DLD, these are the sorts of things I need to do and see if they could get some some additional support, um, if they would get some of that understanding and empathy. So, um, so those are some of the benefits to the student themselves of really being able to understand what's happening and to learn more about it and then giving them that power to advocate for themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and the word that, that you didn't say, but I was thinking in my mind was compensations of how they can compensate. And certainly, you know, language impairment, the language disorder doesn't go away, but you do improve in certain ways and you can compensate. 
And so it's not like a, you know, a death sentence, <laughs> you know, life goes on. And, uh, you know, just like everybody, you know, everybody has some issue that they're dealing with. And that one just happens to be, you know, yours, you know, if we're talking to a child about this. So I like that, in that, you know, you're sort of confronting and saying, here's what's going on. Here's what we can do, we can work together to compensate and uh, have to work really hard at learning these words or putting syntax, you know, making sure that everything is put together correctly and, and how to shape your thoughts and so on. So that, that makes sense to me that you're sort of hitting it, you know, head on. And certainly in, in, with speech impairments, we say, okay, honey, you're having trouble with your R. (laughs) Okay. We've just bottom line that. And here are the things that we can do, or, you know, here we're going to be working on your blends or whatever. It's very identifiable and you narrow it down. But in language, um, I guess we can just, you know, do the best that we can and identifying it with a really strong label that a lot of people are familiar with is a good first step. Thinking on that too, I can think of another um, PhD student's project, uh, Bogey Perlmutter. Uh, they did a project where they looked at college students with DLD and their um, basically like study strategies. And one of the findings from that is that college students with DLD had like a bajillion <laughs> study strategy, like way more than what really? um, normal language, because they were learning this compensation. Now, some of their strategies were ones they came up with, and they maybe they maybe weren't the best. Um, so, for example, sometimes they would ask an informant who wasn't the best informant. So they'd ask their mom about, you know, a, a history paper and. You know, <laughs> Their mom isn't in the history class, so their mom doesn't know know this, but as opposed to asking a peer or something like that. So they had some that were maybe a little bit maladaptive, but, you know, they they had a lot of compensatory strategies. So again, it opens up that door and it really opens up that door too to educating them a little bit more about maybe what would be more adaptive. So again, when we think about like, how can we empower our students? What What is the thing we could give them that they can kind of build off of? You know, that would be an example of helping them sort of understand what's a good strategy. Like you're going to need strategies, but what makes a good strategy and, you know, helping them learn to figure that out. So when we, you know, think about goals, maybe for older students who are going to need to transition more into independence because they're not going to get SLP services forever, that's the type of thing we could think about. Of, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about study strategies, what makes something a good strategy, and then that way you'll be able to kind of keep coming up with ones, but you'll have a better idea of what makes it good, what makes it bad, or what to kind of think about when making a strategy. So you give them that kind of lifelong lesson that maybe they can, you know, build from once those services are, are pulled away. Mm-hmm. Perfect. I really like that. Would you please write those books? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have time for that. <laughs> That's always the issue, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the issue. <laughs> but somebody needs to do that. So yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Get together with some of your friends and work on it. <laughs> I mean, really, that would be the thing to do. Really. Well, thank you so much. This has been really interesting and very helpful. And I think this is a great goal. I'm all for this. Um, And I look forward to seeing the progression as to how it goes. And because you have a lot of of different areas to address um, that you, you know, you just get in there and, and, uh, and whack away at it (laughs) so that you have a really, you know, a nice foundation to build on. So 
Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I do have this one last question that I would like to ask you, and and uh, maybe maybe you can talk with us uh, for two or three minutes about it. Um, but I call it a life lesson question. And here it is. What are your thoughts about the field of speech-language pathology today? Well, that's a deep question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, interestingly, I've, I've been in a lot of meetings lately that have been talking a lot about um, collaboration and a lot of them in different kinds of collaborations. But I, th- I think we've hit on that a little bit in today's talk. So that's that's what's mm-hmm. making me think about it. We were talking about mm-hmm. collaborations between, um, you know, the IEP team, essentially, but, you know, parents, teachers, the SLP coming together to really understand a child's needs and figure out what we're going to do. Um, in some of these other contexts, we've been talking about collaborations between researchers and clinicians. And I think we don't do that enough. You know, we don't have enough crosstalk between the two areas. So we don't we don't have researchers coming out to SLPs and trying to find out, like, what is your biggest problem? <laughs> what do you need solved? Uh, you know, what could I research that's really going to yeah. help you out? I'd or... faint dead away. <laughs> <laughs> but we need Sorry. that, right? Because, you we know, do. Hello? We, we have to do research that is going to really, you know, impact the field. And so we need to know kind of what are the problems that are out there. Um, and, and, you know, uh, uh, likewise, uh, back and forth, you know, what, what do researchers need to be able to do the research? Um, and I think this idea, too, of advocacy is another good one of, of rallying around to say, you know, we need to use this term. We need to get on the same page. We need to make resources that help people learn about this term. Um, you know, if you had Googled specific language impairment, um, you know, five or 10 years ago, I don't know what you would have come up with. I don't think it would have been much. It probably would have been publications, which is not what a family member needs. Uh, If you go out and Google developmental language disorder or DLD, you're going to get a lot of good stuff. And a lot of it is really aimed at the public. Um, And so, you know, that's a good public service kind of thing, a good way that we can collaborate together to kind of have this, you know, uh, unified effort uh, to advocate for the people we serve. And, you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep moving this along so that we can, you know, do some more of that advocacy of saying, you know, these children really need services. Um, You know, you think about how children with autism have gotten a lot of services, children with dyslexia now, there's a little bit more of a movement to get services for dyslexia, a number of uh, bills in in state legislatures about, say, dyslexia and actually diagnose dyslexia, screen for dyslexia, find those kids, get them services. You know, if we want the kids that we serve to get that same kind of advocacy effort, we have to give these labels, we have to give this knowledge, um, and we have to hope that our parents will start forming these same kinds of support groups and advocacy groups and we'll start saying, you know, my kid has a thing, and they need services, um, and the, the person they need it from is an SLP. So we, you know, we need some more SLPs in the schools or we, we need some better ways of serving these children, we need more research, whatever, Whatever it is um, that are the identified needs, we we need to all come together as a community. Um, so I think we need to find more ways that we kind of think together and say, what would really make a difference for a child or an adult with a communication disorder? Now, how can we work together to kind of really move that forward um, and and you know get more momentum? You know, more people should 
care about these folks with communication disorders. And, you know, we should be seeing more effort to support them. Um, and, you know, in this country, I don't think we do a very good job of supporting some folks who are vulnerable. So we really do need that kind of, you know, public outcry. Um, and it's not going to be just from those of us in the field. You know, it needs to be a broader, even though there's a, a lot of SLPs, there's still very few compared to the, you know, full scope of who's in the nation and who has the power to make decisions and things like that. So, you know, we really need to kind of come together and think about those types of issues and how we can all kind of pull in the same direction and, and make some change. Yes, very good. Very good. I like it. <laughs> yes, let's do it. All right. <laughs> let's do let's it. go. <laughs> let's go. Thank you, Holly. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Thanks I just so I appreciate much. you so much. I'm so glad that you're out there that, and you're on our side. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love hearing you uh, explain the really difficult things, you know. And and but you know, you're very practical. I I like that research orientation that you have, but I love the practicality piece as well. And I just really appreciate that about you. So well, thank thanks you. so much. Yeah, wonderful to be here, Shar. Appreciate the invitation. Yes, and great, I appreciate great. your listeners tonight sticking in here. So. Yes, yes, yes. And I, and I want to talk to them here for a minute. So in closing, I do want to thank everyone for being here and for tuning in and, and also for continuing to get the word out about the speech link podcast where, of course, you not only learn tons of practical information, like tonight, you earn CEUs. And uh, do know that in a very few days, you'll be able to access this course through speechtherapypd.com, and you can watch it again if you want. Uh, but also, if you desire, you can access the audio-only version on all the popular podcast apps like Apple Podcast and TuneIn and Podbean and all of those. So and I really want to thank you. I appreciate your supportive comments on those and all your good reviews. Also, if you are planning ahead for next month for the speech link, you are uh, in luck. You've got a, another great speaker on Thursday, October 13 at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. The extremely practical and knowledgeable speech language pathologist Karen Searcy will make her second appearance. And uh, she'll share her insights on ambiguous loss, how to support families during stressful times. Very appropriate. I hope you can attend and I hope you know just how much you are appreciated. Thank you so much for all that you do for your therapy kids and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. I'm thrilled you tuned into the speech link. I hope it was helpful. Just leave a quick review and subscribe to be a part of a select group that receives every episode. For CEUs, go to speechtherapypd.com. And for everything else, visit sharboshart.com. There's free materials, articles, books, and my blog, Therapy Matters. Thank you for all you do. See you next time.